We are going to pick up where we left off in Genesis just a couple weeks ago. And rather than starting right with uh, chapter 6, I'm going to give us a little bit of a connection to where we were. So we're going to start reading in Genesis 5, verse 28, and move on from there to 6, verse 8. This is the end of that um, genealogy, Seth's genealogy. Genesis 5, 28, this is the word of God. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives, took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we confess this morning this is not a text that we look at much. It's confusing, strange, and yet you have, by your Spirit's power, through the generations, through the millennia, preserved this as your word, spoken by you, so that we would hear it. So Lord, we trust that this is for us, and we pray, Lord, that you would give us, by your Spirit's enlightening power, give us understanding of what this means. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So that's not a distraction. There's enough distractions this morning in this text. So our text this morning, uh, as we open it up, we, we look, look at it, we see that this is, this is interesting. Let's just get that out of the way. This is interesting, and it's interesting for several reasons. But really, this, this, these verses, verses 1 through 8, really are meant to be just an introduction, an introduction to Noah and the flood, which is also kind of a decreation, and then the new creation. These eight verses cover really about a thousand years of human history, give or take, maybe more. And there's a lot, if we just acknowledge right off, right off the bat, there's a lot that these verses don't tell us. But what they're meant to tell us, what we see very clearly here, is that something has gone horribly, horribly wrong with humanity. 
culminating in this this summary statement of of verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And that, of course, leads to the judgment of God. God's judgment is equally thorough. God resolves to blot out the entire kingdom of man from the rulers who are humanity to the subjects, the the birds and the animals. The question then, and there are, yeah, just, there's a lot of questions in this text. But the, the big question, the burning question that, that hits us as we look at verses 1 through 8 is how in the world did it get this bad? How did it get this bad? How did we go from the end of chapter 4 when, when, when Moses says at that time people, people began to call upon the name of the Lord to hear what, what is really the center of our text? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And can you just just look at that again? Can you think of, of any more emphatic way to say that humanity has become completely corrupted? Look at that again. Every, go back to that previous slide, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In the most emphatic way possible, Moses tells us that mankind was always evil all the time, all the way through the entire heart. And it is that situation that brings God's judgment in the second half of the chapter. We'll look at that all the way through chapter 7. We'll look at that next week. What is supposed to be great in the earth at this point, and we've got several generations of humanity now, what is supposed to be great in the earth through humanity is the image of God. But instead, what is great is the wickedness of man, the stench of human sin. How did this happen? How did did humanity get so hopelessly sinful to where God will destroy everyone except this this family of eight people. In verse 5, just as we kind of get a framework for how important this question is, verse 5 tells us this is worse than than what we would call indwelling sin or the sin nature or, just to put it plainly, plain old sin. Adam had the sin nature, right? We saw Adam, he, he sinned against God, he's kicked out of the garden. We know from, from Romans Five, that, that through Adam's sin spread to all of mankind. So we know that's happening. All of them have the sin nature. They are, are all prone to sin, even including Noah, who isn't destroyed by the flood. But, but somehow things have gotten, gotten to the point where all of human civilization has become unrestrained in their sin. It, it makes me think of a, a rabid dog. So all dogs bite, right? It's in their nature to bite, but there are restraints that keep dogs from biting. Training, discipline, those things keep dogs from biting. A fear of a bigger dog keeps dogs from biting. When a dog is sleeping, they're not biting. 
But the rabies virus can, in, can infect a dog in such a way that every inclination of the dog all the time is to bite. And in the same way, the sin nature had already taken hold with Adam. That happened in the garden. He had become a sinner by nature, a, a biter, if you will. But even with the sin nature, God has given humanity common graces that restrain our sin. God's discipline, we saw in chapter 3, God's discipline was meant to restrain the sin nature. If you'll remember, the woman was disciplined in such a way that she was going to have to trust in the Lord in order for children to be born. That would turn her to the Lord consistently. The man had to trust in the Lord in order for the crops to come in. God's judgment was a restorative judgment. It was meant to keep humanity from being as wicked as they possibly could be. God, if you remember at the end of chapter 3, God sent man out of the garden in order to restrain the wickedness of the sin nature. Remember what he said? Lest man eat of the tree of, of life and live forever. He didn't want a sinful man to be living forever. There was, a, there was a restraint. Death itself restrains the sin nature. And that's not all that restrains us from being as wicked as we possibly could be. Natural law restrains the sin nature. Family order, the order of our families, the family itself restrains the sin nature. Marriage restrains the sin nature. Peer pressure does. Shame does. Honor does. The conscience does. All of these things are from God and they're given to all of mankind and we call them common graces. And all of these things restrain the sin that is in us. All of these things keep us from being as wicked as we possibly could be. But something has happened here in chapter 6, before the flood, that has cut the sin in man's heart loose from its, from its moorings. Evil is loosed from the things which restrain it, and humanity becomes utterly and thoroughly and completely wicked. What happened? Well, as you read this passage, it's clear that either these strange marriages in verses 1 and 2 are the cause of what happens, or they at least have something to do with it, don't they? Somehow we go from verses 1 and 2 to verse 5, and Moses has written this in such a way that there is a connection. The question is, what is it? Well, first things first, verse 1, let's look at verse 1, chapter 6, verse 1. And if, if, you're, if you're new with us, we just usually go straight through the scriptures. So we're going to be looking at these scriptures in order. We're going to start with verse 1 and move on. Verse 1 gives us a timeline for when this happened. When everything happened, it, 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 that word when there, all this took place, when mankind is multiplying and daughters are being born. So when is that? Okay, well, we've seen that. Chapter 5. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. This is the book of the generations of Adam when God created who? Man. He made him in the likeness of God, male and female. He created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. 
When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. All right, so as you go on in chapter 5, you see each of these descendants of Adam and Seth have other sons and daughters. Seth had other sons and daughters. Enosh had other sons and daughters. Kenan had other sons and daughters, and so on all the way down the line. Chapter 5 tells us who man is. In verse 1, it says God created man in his likeness. He named them man in verse 2. And then the rest of chapter 5 says, and they're having sons and daughters. And that's essentially what chapter 6 is telling us. During that time, when humanity was multiplying and daughters were being born and they were subduing the earth, they were spreading across the earth, that's when something really bad happened. What? What? Bad stuff happened. Well, verse 2. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, here was the big question. Who are they? Who are the sons of God? That is the major question, because obviously it's linked to the rest of what happens here in chapter 6. Uh, and, and we're going to spend a few minutes here talking about the different ways that Christians throughout history have understood who these sons of God are. So just a kind of a deviation from the sermon for a little bit of a, a history lesson, a theology lesson. There's basically three theories about who the sons of God are, and some variations on each of these. But all of these three theories that, that I'll share with you are considered orthodox, which is mean they're, they're, they're held by uh, Bible-believing, confessional, conservative, Bible scholars, people who believe in the, the Scriptures. So in terms of who teaches each of these positions, I'm going to tell you right now, they all have equal merit. And I'll let you know which I believe is the most biblic biblically consistent when we get to it. But that the first theory about who these sons of God are suggests that these people are Seth's offspring. All right, remember Seth from chapter 5? The idea is that Seth's line, so Adam to Seth, Seth li Seth's line is godly. They are blessed by God. Uh, they, it's, it's like they are the sons of God, in a sense. Uh, and, and Cain's line, on the other hand, is not godly. They are worldly. Cain's offspring are the sons of man. So when Seth's line... When his lineage begins to intermarry with Cain's line, well, then everything goes off the rails. The pagan Cainite women corrupt the God-fearing Sethite men, and there's no longer a family of people who call upon the name of the Lord, except Noah. And that's when God brings judgment. And the reason, the theory there, the reason is God brings judgment on the rest of the world in order to Protect Mary, uh, to protect Noah. Why I said Mary, <laughs> to protect Noah, uh, so that through Noah the the seed would continue. All right, so he's protecting this last godly family from corruption. There are some strengths to to this position. The first strength is that when you step back and you look at all of Israel's history, so you look at all of Scripture in the Old Testament, you look at it as a whole. Remember, Genesis is written to Israelites. So that's important. When you look at the scriptures, you, you find consistently that who the Israelites marry is an important issue. It's an important doctrine. 
Whenever Israelites or the kings of the Israelites start to marry the Moabites or the Canaanites or the Hittites or the Egyptians, that's when they start worshiping foreign gods. And the whole country is led astray and God brings judgment. There's a pattern of that. The theory then is that this incident in Genesis 6 is meant to be an instructive warning to the Israelites. The godly line of Seth, the precursor to the Israelites, they intermarried with the worldly and idolatrous line of Cain and it brought God's judgment. Therefore, you Israelites and you Christians ought not to marry pagans. So this is a true historical event that also serves as a future lesson for Israel. So that's the first theory, or, or the, the first strength of this theory. The second strength of this theory is that it follows the contours of chapters 4 and 5. Chapter 4 is about the bad guys. Chapter 5 is about the good guys. Chapter 6, then, is about when the good guys married the bad guys' daughters and it turned them all bad. Bad company corrupts good morals. That's a very short way of putting this. Now, if you're wondering, okay, well, that sounds, that sounds reasonable. I mean, the, Martin Luther held this position. John Calvin held this position. Steve Lawson, very prominent, well-known, conservative uh, uh, preacher, holds this position. Many great Bible scholars and teachers hold this position. Is there any textual support for it? And there is. Israel is often referred to as God's son in the Old Testament. So it's not unusual for God's people to be spoken of as the children of God. Add to that, Adam himself in Luke chapter 3 is referred to as God's son. So if Adam is son of God, there's warrant then to say that Adam's sons in Seth's line are also sons of God. That's where they're getting this from. The other strength of this position, this isn't a textual argument, but... Uh, it's a little more theological. This, this position, an advantage of holding this position, that, that, that the sons of God are Seth's offspring, it avoids the complications of a more supernatural understanding of sons of God. So we are wary of, of the implications of saying that God has sons like this. That sounds kind of cultish. That, that could lead us in the direction of polytheism. Christians are not polytheists, and so, so we, we ease that tension and take sons of God more figuratively to mean the godly sons, like it's an adjective, godly sons, or the sons of God through Adam and Seth, because Adam is, in a way, God's son. Here's the problem with this position. This is a major problem. To me, it's irreconcilable. Moses has just told us at the beginning of chapter 5 who man is. So if we're trying to figure out who the sons of God are and who the sons of man is, uh, are, well, Moses told us who man is in chapter 5. Man is Adam and his offspring, particularly through the line of Seth. And it is this line of Seth where all the daughters are mentioned. And then chapter 6 says, when that's happening, this other stuff is happening. So for chapter 5 to say that God named them man, and then to name Adam and Seth as man, and then to totally change that in chapter 6, and redefine man as Cain and his people, well, that's, that's a big problem. That's an insurmountable problem textually, in, in, in my opinion. Words matter. Definitions matter. We can't just ignore what Moses has said in chapter 5. 
It serves to instruct us about chapter 6. So, in order to get around that problem, which is, many see that as the major problem here, another theory, which is equally strong and equally old and equally held by uh, prominent Bible scholars, a second theory reverses the first one, flips it on its head. It says that sons of God can be translated as sons of gods, plural, and it can, actually. And the sons of gods are pagan, wicked rulers who come through Cain's offspring. And then the sons of man would be just as Moses has told us in chapter 5, Seth's offspring. That theory avoids that glaring problem that we saw at the beginning of chapter 5. Moses says Adam through Seth and his people are named man, and so the Cainite view says, yes, they are man, and the sons of God are those from Cain's line. And, uh, and chapter 6 then is telling us what's happening to the sons of man, or the, the offspring of Seth. Their daughters are being taken by these wicked kings, and this has a corrupting influence on civilization. Now, the, the argument draws on the strengths of the previous one because it, it, it recognizes of that good guy, bad guy tension between chapters 4 and 5. You've got good guys in, in chapter 5 and bad guys in chapter 4. It acknowledges that that's a part of the story here. But there are some uh, other clues within the text that support this argument. So, so back in chapter 4, if you'll remember this, Cain named, uh, he built a city and he named it after his own son. Do you remember that? Which is to say, and this is the way that we taught it, because this is how we're to understand it, Cain wanted to make his name great. And then uh, Cain's offspring, Lamech, so the seventh from Cain was Lamech, he was a tyrannical and violent leader. That was also very clear in the text. Now, if we fast forward to the end of verse 4 of our passage, it says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were who? The, the Nephilim, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now that sounds very, fairly innocent, but the Hebrew word translated mighty men here, really this is a negative thing. These are, these are domineering, these are tyrannical men, which reminds us, violent tyrannical men. So it reminds us of Lamech. And, and the Hebrew word translated men of renown is literally men of the name or men who make their name known. And that sounds like Cain. So it's possible then that these Nephilim and the, the mighty men, the men of renown, are those following in the footsteps of Cain's lineage. They're doing what grandpa did, what dad did. That, though, is about all the biblical support there is for this position. There is support for this position outside the Bible. Uh, it, there's a... Um, those who would say that these, the sons of the gods are these tyrannical rulers from Cain's line get the support, the arguments for their position from old ancient Babylonian writings. So in some Babylonian legends before the flood came, and we'll talk about this next week, but everyone across the ancient world has writings about a flood. And in the Babylonian writings before the flood came, the wicked powerful kings were called sons of God. They're sons of gods. And these, these wicked kings would often take the wives of the commoners, the men, the regular men, and they would take them as their own. They had a practice in those days where on the wedding night of a common marriage, 
the wicked king would take the bride as his own and then give her back to the groom the next morning. So this is a horribly unjust practice. And um, those who hold the theory that the offspring of Cain are the sons of God read that practice back into this story for the support of their, their theory. And that's kind of persuasive in some ways. But I reject that. Reject that view for, in favor of the last one. What I believe is the simplest view, the most straightforward reading of the text. So that is that the sons of God are not human, they're not earthly kings, they're not from Cain's line or Seth's line, rather they're some supernatural or divine creatures. And the daughters of man are just what it says they are, the, the daughters of people in Seth's line, this is human daughters. This is the most natural reading of what's happening, it's also what I believe has the most biblical support. So first of all, we've seen in, in Genesis already that there are hints that there are others with God in heaven. So in Genesis 1.26, you'll remember when God said, let us make man in our image, he was using the plural. He was talking to someone. In, in Genesis 3.22, when the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Again, he's talking to someone. And we, we talked when we went through those passages that most likely he's talking to what we call a divine counsel of some, for, some sort. Well, Genesis 6.2, I believe, tells us who the us is. They are the sons of God. And we see this in the rest of Scripture. Uh, the first place we see it again is in Job chapter 1. This is, this is some group of divine beings that are called the sons of God. And in Job chapter 1, verse 6, it's very clear. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves to the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Now, whoever this Satan character is, Satan means accuser, accuser. It, could be, it could be the devil, it could also be some other oppositional figure. Whoever he is, when you read Job, you know he's not human. We know he's not human because if you read the rest of the book, you find this, this interchange between Satan and God and the sons of God in, in, in the spirit, is, is in the spiritual realm and not in the earthly realm. Job doesn't know about what has taken place. Job questions God for all the things that have happened to him. And the whole point of the book is that there is an unseen realm. There's another level of authority. There's another level of understanding that isn't available to Job, and he must trust the Lord with these things. And there's a couple other texts that talk about these guys. Uh, Psalm 29, verses 1 and 2. We see the sons of God in this passage as well. Psalm 29, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. This is the psalmist commanding these heavenly beings to worship God above all, because he is God above all. And the phrase that we translate in our ESV Bibles as heavenly beings in the Hebrew is literally bini Elohim, which means sons of God. Exact same phrase translated as sons of God in Genesis 6 and in Job chapter 1. And this happens again. These sons of God come up again in the Psalms. Psalm 89. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings, there it is again, the sons of God in the Hebrew, who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all 
who are around him. So, so this is the sons of God. They are the assembly of the holy ones. They are the council of the holy ones that surround the Lord. They're not equal with God, though. They are not gods. They are less than God. They are not the one true God, but some sort of spiritual beings that God has created and given authority to. And I think the ESV is right on to translate this as heavenly beings. They're not Yahweh. They're not the persons of the Trinity. And yet they dwell in God's presence. This doesn't, look, we've seen this. This shouldn't bother us too much. We've seen angels before. We know that there are cherubim and seraphim in the presence of God. We've talked about those guys. We know that there are angels of the Lord like Michael in, in the book of Daniel and Jude and Revelation or, or Gabriel in the Gospels. I think what bothers us about this, at least what bothers me about this, is not that they might be spiritual beings or angelic beings, but that they're called sons of God. That... that strikes me as strange. In fact, this whole, this whole issue would be a lot easier if the ESV would have just translated as heavenly beings, the same way they do in Psalm 29 or Psalm 89. Uh, and so, so the chapter 6, verse 2, would just say, the heavenly beings saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took them as wives. No big deal. That'd be convenient. But the literal translation is sons of God. That's what it says in the Hebrew. So, so here's what, what you, you need to know about. To, you, we, we need to know about this. Let me spit it out. Sons does not refer to family lineage here, but to authority. That's key. In the spiritual realm, something that we hardly ever talk about, it's the first time ever from this pulpit, uh, it, it, except for when we talked about the descent. Um, in the spiritual realm, there is a hierarchy, a hierarchy of spiritual beings. And the sons of God are those who are underneath God Almighty. So in terms of authority, they're like sons. But in terms of their ontology or who they are in themselves, they are spiritual beings that are created beings, created by God. Probably the easiest way to think about this is they're angels who have been given authority and who have the title sons of God. And that leads us to the final, final piece of the biblical puzzle here. All right, so in the book of Jude. Jude is where we see this all come together. Jude is using, the, uh, in Jude's letter, he's using the judgments of God as a warning to Christians. Uh, and uh, he, he's warning Christians not to be misled by false teaching. And in verse 6, Jude says, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, there's that word authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. All right, so is that talking about chapter 6 of Genesis? Well, it is because we see this in verse 7, the very next verse. He says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality, likewise to what? Likewise to the angels in verse 6. And they pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So, so what Jude is saying is Sodom and Gomorrah's indulgence in unnatural sexual immorality was like those angels from Genesis 6 who left their heavenly abode for unnatural sexual immorality. 
Jude squares it all up for us, doesn't he? The sons of God are divine, angelic beings who left their place of authority in their heavenly dwelling and came to earth, took human wives, and they had children. Now there is, that just opens up a whole can of worms, doesn't it? It's <laughs> just more questions now than you had before. There is a lot to be desired here in terms of detail. But here, here's, here's my pastoral instruction. I believe that God is intentionally skimpy on the details here. Because we, as fallen human beings, can become easily distracted by the things of the spiritual realm. We know, for instance, when you read the book of Colossians, that the Colossian church had, had been tempted and, and misled to worship angels. And so they're being corrected by the Apostle Paul. Don't do that. Focus on Christ. Don't focus on these unseen things. We know that many cults get overly interested in angels and demons in this spiritual realm, but I, I believe that God has intentionally made the, the spiritual realm a sort of a need-to-know Bare bones issue. He tells us what we need to know and nothing more. The spiritual world is a reality. Yes. Read Ephesians 6. Our battle is against that unseen realm. But it's not meant to be a spectacle. It's not meant to distract us. The Holy Spirit consistently moves our attention away from those things and toward Christ. Christ is to be our focus. Scriptures are about Christ. And if there's any evidence that we should not be overly fascinated by these things, Genesis 6 is exhibit A. These, these beings from the spiritual realm were against the will of God, marrying women from the earthly realm, and people from the earthly realm were allowing this to happen. As a result, the institution of marriage... That, that common grace that, that helps regulate human sinfulness. The institution of marriage becomes corrupted. It is, is undermined as a means through which humanity is, is kept from being as wicked as our hearts could be. And when the marriage hitch pin is pulled, humanity is cut loose and drifts further from God and further from God and further from God. Not to mention whatever strange influence these rebellious creatures have on humanity. And the result of all of this is what we see in verse 4, that the Nephilim. Who are they? Well, the ESV does not translate that word Nephilim for us. That's just a Hebrew word. It leaves the word sitting there in the Hebrew for us to figure out on our own. The Hebrew word, uh, some have attempted to translate it in the past. It's ambiguous, though, because it kind of means fallen ones. It can mean fallen ones, but it can also mean, if you have a King James Bible, it can mean giants. So either way, these, these creatures are the unholy offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of man, and they are trouble for all of humanity. They are, they are further described in verse 4 as, like we talked about earlier, the mighty men, the men of renown. And that, that literally means that, that they are uh, they're rulers over the earth, and they're ruling in a way that is tyrannical and violent and domineering. And they are ruling in such a way that they are making a name for themselves by their own power. 
And this, living for your own name rather than the name of God, is the ultimate sin of Genesis. This, is, this was Eve's sin. She wanted to be equal with God. She took of the tree and ate. And then we have history after that. But this is, this is the sin of, of these men uh, that will come up again and again. It happened with Cain, or it happened with Eve, it happened with Cain. It will happen again at the Tower of Babel uh, in Genesis 11. Then they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. They want to be men of renown. And that's what's happened to humanity. They have become less reliant on God. They no longer fear God. They aren't calling upon the name of the Lord anymore. They have become boastful in themselves. They have become mighty and powerful in themselves. They don't respect God. They don't represent God on earth as they had been created to do. Instead, they represent themselves. They're living for their own glory. And as a result, God gives this warning in verse 3. He says, My spirit will not abide in, some translations say, contend with or dwell with man forever. For he's flesh. His day shall be 120 years. Now this does not mean that humans will now, from here on out, from verse 3 onward, only live to be 120 years old. If you think that, as I did, it's because you're still fixated on those ages of the patriarchs in chapter 5. We have to get past that. What's, what's happening here is humanity has become corrupted. They're no longer living as God's representatives. They're not spreading his glory. They're not spreading his fame. They're boasting in themselves. And this leads to all sorts of violence. And God responds with judgment. And what this 120 years is, it's a warning it's a 120-year warning. It's, a, it's, a, it's an expiration date for the earth and all that is in it. It's sort of like when Jonah goes into Nineveh and he says, what, 40 days and judgment will come. 40 days and God will destroy Nineveh. God is warning whoever will listen here that the end is nigh. This is the 120 years of God's patience. On a route towards a, a rebellious people. There are to be 120 years, and then God will remove his spirit. And the removal of the sustaining power of the spirit means judgment. Because what we've seen in Genesis chapter 1 is that the spirit brings order from chaos. Remember, the spirit was hovering over the waters. The spirit is the creative one. The spirit breathes life. The spirit sustains life. The spirit protects and upholds creation. The removal of the spirit means the undoing of everything, the undoing of creation. The world and all that is in it is not a watch that a watchmaker wound up and set into motion. Creation is much more like a garden that is constantly being tended by God through his spirit. So when the Spirit steps back from that, everything falls in on itself. It's like my garden when I'm gone for a few weeks. Weeds, gophers, and everything else. It all falls in on itself. Not because God isn't capable of making a self-sustaining creation, but because God is a personal, relational God. We'll see more of that next week. But what we need to see here is that verse 3 is a merciful warning. It is a sign of God's patience. God is a personal, relational God. We are accountable to Him, and He is patient. 
just want to pause here and remind you of that. God is patient with you. We read this in uh, our New Testament scripture reading today. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Peter is reminding us here, as Jesus does later on, that God is patient in bringing about judgment. But do not mistake, do not mistake the patience of God for neglect. Do not think that it is slowness. Do not think that it is inaction or that God doesn't care. Even now, God is patiently waiting for his people to repent. Even now, those who are are in Christ, who have strayed from the Lord, God is being patient with you. He has not brought judgment yet. So repent and return to Christ. Well, the patience of God gets us to this last section of Genesis 6. I I think the point of that little bit in verse 3 is to show that while all of humanity is devolving into chaos and madness and violence. God wasn't ignoring it. God wasn't doing nothing. He was patiently waiting for them to repent and return to him. And here in verses 5, 6, and 7, we see when God acts. And if you look at these, these, these verses, you can almost see God's action jumping from the page if you look down at it. Look down at the text. What do you see? The Lord saw. The Lord regretted. The Lord said. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord. And if verses 1 through 4 is about man, then verses 5 through 8 is about the Lord. He is still, this is what Moses is reminding us of here, he is still ruler over all of creation. Even if these boastful and wicked rulers on the earth are these mighty men of renown, even if they are more powerful than anyone else on the earth, they are still ultimately answerable to God. So in verse 5, the Lord sees what's happening. That's another reminder. God is personal. He is relational. He sees what's happening. He sees that man is now as wicked as he could possibly be. Nothing is hidden from God. He sees the plight of his creation. It reminds me of of, of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 6, Moses is interacting with God, and, and God tells Moses, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel. And that's when, what his response there is to judge Egypt and redeem Israel. Similarly here, we see he, God sees the absolute total wickedness of man and he's going to judge all of mankind and redeem Noah. In verse 6, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. So in verse 5, the Lord sees, verse 6, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Humanity's wickedness has become so great, so great that every single thought of his heart was 100% unadulterated evil. But God's righteousness is such that when he sees man's wickedness, what is in God's heart? He grieves. You see that juxtaposition in verses 5 and 6? Man was wicked through and through, all the way through his heart. The Lord is grieved in his heart. 
Mankind was made by God to flourish, to to participate in God's blessing, to rule with righteousness in the name of God under the authority of God. And instead, mankind has become completely corrupt, so corrupt that the entire earth underneath man's rule is also corrupted, and this grieves the Lord. Before you get worked up about God regretting as if he has done something wrong or, or grieving as if he didn't see this coming, That misses the point of what's happening here. God doesn't change, and he knows the end from the beginning. None of this is surprise God. What's happening here is Moses is using a play on words. This is a play on words in the Hebrew. We kind of don't see it in English, but it's meant to point us to a greater reality. The word for regret here in verse 6 is the word naham, and it has a huge range of meaning. It can mean regret. It can mean to be sorry. It can mean to be sorrowful, but it could also mean to comfort. So usually it's used in cases where there's, there's some sort of, of bad situation, but you've resolved to fix it, and that plan that you have brings comfort. All right, so, so, so Esau comforted himself in his anger against Isaac because he had resolved to kill Isaac. That comforted Esau. That's, that's the word there. It's the same word in the Hebrew. It's also that, the, the word that Lamech, back in 529, Lamech used this word. Look at, verse five, look at verse 29. And he called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief. There's that word, relief, naham, which also means regret. We bring relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. So there's a, there's a play on words that Moses is using. Lamech. Had Naham, the Lord has Naham. Now the word relief there is Naham, and the prayer from Lamech is that the Lord would bring relief or comfort, that he would bring a solution to the pain. And that word pain is the same word for grief in Genesis 6.6. So what's happening is that the Lord is answering Lamech's prayer, and Moses is showing us that. Uh, if we're looking carefully, Lamech has asked for comfort in the midst of the grief of life. And Lamech hoped that Noah would be the one to bring that comfort. And here the Lord is echoing back Lamech's words, but he's rephrasing them. 